politics, music, technology, roller coasters, golf carts, and the greatest country on earth. National Review's new show, the Charles C. W. Cook Podcast, that's me, explores the scenic highways and byways of American political and cultural life. Featuring interviews with leading writers, thinkers, and public figures, every episode offers a fresh perspective on the promises and challenges facing America. Don't miss out. Tune into the Charles C. W. Cook podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. Is the Israeli ground invasion off? Will Republicans ever find a speaker and are conservatives hypocrites on cancel culture? We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined, as always, by Ramesh Panuru, Madeline Maddie Kearns, and the notorious M.B.D. Michael Brennan Doherty. You are, of course, listening to a Nashville podcast. Our sponsors this episode are Donors Trust and Bethlehem College. More about them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And if you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So MBD, we are in this... Uh, in between state in Israel, where it, it seemed in the immediate aftermath of this horrific attack that immediately the ground forces would enter Gaza to destroy Hamas, as all the leaders of Israel said, was their goal. Now it's been almost two weeks. The ground forces were not in. You have President Biden, who is over there on a, a brief trip, which we'll discuss a little bit more in a moment. Came, came back on the plane and said, you know what, there might be alternatives to a ground invasion. It certainly seems as though Israel is considering alternatives to a ground invasion. What do you make of it? Yeah, um, I think Israel knows. I mean, listen, <laughs> Israel does not want to go into Gaza, right? This is Hamas. Hamas's outrage on October 7th is forcing their hand via, you know, public opinion uh, going into, you know, Israel, at great political cost and great pain in 2005, exited Gaza entirely, wanted nothing to do with it, uh, precisely because it is unpoliceable and maybe ungovernable. Um, And a ground invasion could result in a horrific number of casualties, both for um, innocent Palestinians and for the IDF itself. And I, I think they are... Are, um, I mean, I, I would guess that they are working very hard to come up with a war plan for a multi-front war, believing that they're vulnerable from Hezbollah in the north, that there's trouble potentially brewing in the West Bank as well. Um, and they may also be delaying because of Joe Biden's visit to really get a measure of what how much leash the Americans want to give them and what the real purpose of our gunships in the Mediterranean is for, is that to deter Iran in the, in the long run, or in some way are we, are we determined to deter Israel for fear of a regional war breaking out? Um, so everything's been on pause. Um, and, uh, you know, my, my friends and contacts in Israel are growing restless by the day. Uh, to see some action. So, Maddie, uh, we had this outrageous event uh, last last couple days, this alleged hospital hit from from a Israel Israeli bomb that the Gaza Gazan authorities said uh, killed 500 people. You had all the media pretty much picking it up and the New York Times and everyone else on down, and it turns out it was a Hamas a misfire. No, sorry, as as Islamic Jihad, Palestinian Islamic Jihad misfire that hit a parking lot, which next to the hospital, which is not a, ideal. But when there is daybreak, you could see. No, actually, the hospital wasn't destroyed, and there's no way 500 people died in this, and Israel didn't do it, which didn't stop the media f- from 
uh, going with it before they had confirmation of the story coming out of Gaza. And then you have uh, Tlaib and others basically still retailing this story. She she was at a rally, I don't know whether it was maybe yesterday, where she s- said how outrageous it is that, that people are targeting uh, hospitals, which might be true if she was talking about Islamic Jihad, but she clearly wasn't. And this is disturbing on, on many levels, one of which it just shows what thin ice Israel is on. Because in, inevitably, there's going to be a stray bomb or a stray tank shell that's going to hit a hospital or something like it inadvertently. And this just shows the ton of bricks that will fall on Israel's head in terms of international opinion and opprobrium. It was a lie. It was a lie told by Hamas. We you mentioned the various elements of this lie. First of all, that it was an Israeli airstrike. It, it wasn't. Uh, secondly, that it was a hospital um, that was, was hit. It wasn't. It was a parking lot. And, and finally, the, the number of casualties was, was greatly exaggerated to, to 500. And the disturbing part of the story to me was the, the readiness with which our mainstream media, both in the US and in the UK, were, were ready to believe it. This is Hamas is the source. Um, you know, they're quoting the Gaza Health Ministry, but of course the Gaza Health Ministry is controlled by Hamas. And you had uh, the BBC saying on air um, that it's hard to see how this this could be anything other than an Israeli airstrike. Just complete credulousness. Um, and the question is, well, why? Why do they want to believe this uh, about Israel? Why Why are they seeking to, to focus on the narrative that Hamas wants to tell? And I think you're exactly right. It's because the the support for Israel, the sympathy for Israel is is time limited. Um, you know, we've already moved on from conversations about the hostages, hostages, and we're now almost exclusively, at least in the UK, their media coverage almost exclusively talking about the plight of Palestinians um, and applying standards of war that we just don't apply in any other circumstances. Obviously, civilian casualties are to be avoided, but they are unfortunately in war, at least in how wars are currently fought, they are inevitable. And so the the question of proportionality, which I know MBD and others have have clarified, is whether the the casualty rate uh, is proportionate to your intention. So your intention isn't to inflict casualties. That's the intention of Hamas and other terrorist organisations. The intention is to win the war to end the conflict by winning decisively, which in the long term actually means that less people will, will die and, and, and suffer these, these horrible conditions which have been brought on by Hamas. So, yeah, the, the, the media narrative is just completely spinning out of control and really shows the, the bias that, that Israel are, are contending with. Yeah, and this, this wasn't necessarily a hard one either because people uh, on the... Uh, uh, right of center, who pro-Israel, immediately were skeptical of this story. So it w- wasn't as though you needed specialized information or needed to be on the inside of uh, the Israeli military or intelligence operation to know <laughs> you should at least pause and wait to see more, and they couldn't bring themselves to do that. So Ramesh, uh, to his credit, Joe Biden went to Israel in a couple respects as to his credit. One, he went to Israel and uh, showed the flag um, uh, on the sovereign territory of this ally that has experienced this horrific attack and now has um, very tough choices to make and how to respond to it. And two, you know, I've been uh, uh, banging the drum about Biden's reduced and diminished state and what a risk it is for the country and Democrats. But he, he got over there, you know, he came back and we're recording Thursday morning here, not usually we're on Friday, but Thursday morning he's going to give an Oval Office address. So that that uh, speaks to a certain level of energy, maybe more I've given them credit for. But how do you grade his performance in, in terms of what, what, he, what he said over there? Well, I think it depends on what kind of standard uh, we're going to use. It's certainly um, reasonable to criticize him uh, on a number of grounds, including the uh, reticence with respect to Iran. Uh, but um, if you measure him against the standard of a Democratic Party that is, that is divided uh, and increasingly divided on this question, um, I think he looks better. Uh, because 
uh, I think it's it's it is a minority of the Democratic Party at the moment, um, but it's certainly a, a vocal minority that cares a lot about this issue. And you've already mentioned Rashida Tlaib, but also AOC, um, uh, Ilhan Omar, uh, a lot of the uh, the activists who held that sit-in, um, the campus wing of the of the left, and. Uh, we're now seeing the beginnings. We, there was, there's been at least one resignation from the administration over its support for Israel during this crisis. Um, I, so I think under those circumstances, I'm inclined to, uh, to give Biden uh, a little bit of a higher grade uh, just based on his, uh, his, his, his planting his flag in the right camp of the party. Yeah. So Ramesh, by the way, I, I was Ramesh. I should, uh, I wasn't, I was remiss. <laughs> um, this is your first appearance on, on the, the editors. And, I've arrived. Yeah. And renders the podcast title at least a little less of an anachronism. When we, we started, actually, everyone who was on was, was editing something at NR. And then, then we've gone on where no one's editing anything, but we have you. So at least we have an editor I kind of on like, the, the editors. I kind of like the idea that when you started, you were saying, as always, we're joined by Ramesh Panera. And I was thinking, oh, so we're just going to gaslight everybody. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Week in, week <laughs> and, out. And I think the uh, probably the only way you have time to, to be on this podcast is because we now have monthly, gone monthly with print. So you just, you're, you're bouncing around with nothing to do because you ah. just put the monthly issue to bed and there, there's nothing else happening for another no, month. We, so, so yes, we, we've, uh, we've gone to monthly for the print edition, but we've managed to do it in a way that increases our workload <laughs> uh, rather than cutting it because we're, we're going to be doing a weekly emailed version of the week, our opening section with our editorial comments, uh, and uh, and so this uh, this requires um, instead of instead of one quarter the number of uh, editorial meetings and so forth, more like twice the number <laughs> that we've had before. Well, we look forward to that. So, MVD exit question on this uh, topic. So um, let's. Uh, it's an uncomfortable exit question, but l- let's let's th- think uh, in Hamas terms. Uh, it. Do you think they right now are feeling pretty good? I mean, they. Th- this attack was incredibly successful. Tragically, un- unfortunately, we'll we'll learn more about why. It seems like you know, one of the factors is that, that Israel was relying on kind of technical means to police this fence with various sensors, and they were disabled and blinded by Hamas, and, and then they attacked uh, key bases in the, the area, which led to this just uh, terrible rampage over the course of, of eight hours with no military response to, to speak of. And then, you know, the, the Gaza is getting bombed. Uh, Hamas targets are getting hit. There's some uh, Hamas uh, top operatives who have been killed. But otherwise, you know, it's uh, there, there are no tanks rolling into Gaza City right now. So if you're Hamas, do you feel pretty good or are you, you really worried where things might go? Um, I think you feel pretty good in that um, already there are just so many signs that the international opinion supporting Israel is is almost anxious to break down and to begin restraining Israel even before a ground invasion. And I think you are relatively happy in the statements that are coming out of capitals across the Muslim world from, uh, from Erdogan's government to uh, Cairo uh, and beyond. Um, you know, I think Hamas has disrupted the political dynamic in the Middle East, which was until two weeks ago, leaving it isolated. Many. Yeah, I think they, they caught Israel off guard, obviously inflicted mass civilian casualties, which, as we've said, is is their entire aim here. Um, and they've seriously undermined uh, Netanyahu's legacy and, and authority, um, even among Israelis. And uh, they've also won several propaganda victories, as we've seen with this hospital lie, which, you know, okay, now, now the truth's come out, but the damage has, uh, to a large extent, been done. Ramesh? Uh, you do have to wonder what they were thinking uh, in terms of long-term interests. Uh, but if, if, 
if the point was to, uh, you know, create more martyrs, um, I think they are, they are well on their way to achieving their goal. <laughs> I think, unfortunately, I have to be feeling pretty good. I mean, there's the, the attack, which we've discussed, and it's just that uh, Israel's uh, options are, you know, they're, they're downsides to, to all of them. And, and you know, the, the, the leadership of Hamas, it's, it's not in Gaza City. It's not going to be bombed into a Bolivian in Gaza City. It's sitting there in a luxury hotel or whatever in Qatar. And you would hope eventually every single one of those guys is, is hunted down and killed by Israeli assassination teams. But that's a, a long-term uh, project. And just there are just downsides to, to going into Gaza and, and holding Gaza especially. And then probably one of the factors that's staying Israel's hand for now, it has to consider the possibility of what, what would happen in uh, the north. So I, I think Hamas has to be pleased because the ultimate goal is to destroy Israel. And this has shown that Israel, uh, a greater vulnerability on the part of Israel than most people would have um, uh, thought thought possible just two or three weeks ago. With that, let's go to our first sponsor, Donors Trust. In times of crisis, those with a giving spirit and a desire to build up civil society find ways to be helpful. And that's when it's good to have charitable resources ready to deploy where they're needed most. Donors Trust offers donor-advised funds or giving accounts. You can use these funds as your own charitable investment account and manage your charitable giving in a way that's smart, tax-advantaged, and private. Donors Trust clients are using their funds to support charities helping their local communities and humanitarian relief groups helping people overseas. Many with the Donors Trust giving account simultaneously support the think tanks and liberty-minded organizations that believe our constitutional rights shouldn't get lost in times of emergency. Now is the time to take a closer look at Donors Trust and join their community of liberty-minded donors by opening a donor-advised fund. Go to DonorsTrust.org slash editors for its ultimate survival guide to charitable giving and learn how a donor-advised fund can preserve your ability to give charitably. That's DonorsTrust.org slash editors. DonorsTrust.org slash editors. Please check out. It out. So, Ramesh, when we recorded earlier in the week, it was just prior to the votes on Jim Jordan for speaker. He fell. He had 20 no votes or votes for for other folks. The first go round, and he's like, "Look, I'm a I'm a fighter." Kevin McCarthy did this for 15 rounds or whatever it is. I'm settling in for the long haul. We're gonna have another vote. At first, we're gonna have a vote. You know, later on. Tuesday, then it's like, no, we're going to have a vote on, on Wednesday. Had the vote yesterday, went, went a little worse, 22 votes for someone else. He gained, if I'm not mistaken, gained two votes, but then lost another four. And that's usually when, when you're going down in elections of this sort or votes of these sorts, it's, it's never a good sign. Plus, we have reporting from various outlets saying that members skeptical uh, of McCarthy are saying they, they're, they're going to be more votes flaking off uh, the further this goes. So it looks very unlikely that Jim Jordan will be the next speaker of the House, although he has not pulled the plug yet, which raises the uh, question, so what what next? So, so how are you thinking about what accounts for this dynamic that's set hold, you know, this chaos and dis dysfunction for a couple weeks, and where where might we be headed next? Uh, yeah. So I think that not only are Jordan's numbers declining, but his opponents within the Republican conference have deliberately arranged so that some of his opponents are holding their votes until later so that he has a continuously declining number um, that reduces his momentum, which is a sign, I think, of the, uh, of the hostility uh, in some quarters to Jordan and the divisions inside the House is Republican that, Congress. Is that justified, the hostility to Jordan, in your view? Well, I think that there are some, some serious drawbacks that would come with a Speaker Jordan. I think that um, that the wrestling scandal is is potentially both on the merits uh, a problem for Jordan and a political problem for him. I think that his deep involvement in the election overturning attempts after the 2020 presidential election 
are, again, bad on, bad on the merits, but also bad politically, as I think we saw in 2022. Voters are actually a little bit maybe surprisingly um, uh, willing to, uh, to hold um, Republicans to account for that on a, in a kind of discriminating way. Uh, but then I think that the bigger thing, the thing that's actually moving a lot of Republicans is just the, the tactics that have been on display the last few weeks, um, that they just they don't want to create this precedent where, um, you know, to, to simplify it, Matt Gates gets to uh, to veto the speaker, but nobody else can veto his choice for speaker. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what they think that this would lead to. And then you add on the uh, the pressure campaign um, from, you know, Sean Hannity and others, which seems to have backfired as outside pressure on these internal leadership questions often backfires. One thing that I think, though, deserves a little bit more attention uh, from us, um, Marionette Miller-Meeks, uh, the uh, Iowa congresswoman, um, was saying that she's gotten credible death threats over her opposition to Jordan. And I, I do think that we, we should not get um, inured to the rise of violence in the background of U.S. politics and of threats of violence. And it does seem pretty clear that, that it has been rising over the last few years. Yeah. So, MBD, I acknowledge the downsides Ramesh describes regarding Jordan. He did, you know, and this is another aspect of his difficulty. You know, he, he's been the guy who's like, no, we can't just go along to get along. We need to blow things up for, for a very long time. So kind of to switch over to uh, look, we we all got to get along and, and make compromises, so I so we can get this done, and I can be speaker is rubbing some people the wrong way. But you know, he did he did play ball, right? He was he was loyal to um, McCarthy, was part of uh, the McCarthy team. You know, he's a, a committee chairman now, so he he he's graduated from just a bomb thrower. But the the dynamic also that Mesh notes is is key here as well. If Gates blows someone up, why, you know, just two or three choices later, does everyone have to uh, coalesce around the, the choice Gates is comfortable with, right? So, so this this just gets to it's like a, a, a real war where you know people get killed and terrible things happen, and people get more dug in and more hateful and more angry, and it builds on itself. So, so it, it, instead of so far. A, a, an exhaustion effect, and we just got to rally around the flag effect kicking in. It's more like, no, I, I hate you because you weren't with my guy or you did this to my guy, so I'm going to do this to you. And at the moment, there doesn't seem a way out of it. That's right. Well, because the numbers just don't allow any, anyone to the, – the numbers allow everyone to hold some group hostage, right? Um, and for good reason, right? I mean, uh, you know, we've seen that – just a tiny handful of the furthest right figures or the most populist figures in the party can get rid of McCarthy. Well, if you are one of these freshman congressmen from New York, like Mike Lawler or others, you know, who would pay potentially an electoral price for voting for Jim Jordan to be speaker, because in your district, you know, the, the insurrection is considered a, a a serious issue, um, and your brand was to be a, a more moderate or normal Republican representing your region. You know what what incentive do you have to vote for Jim Jordan, and and especially when the attitude across the conference is in this expressive, um, you know, wa- way of like, well, why do you guys get to vent your bile, but I don't get to vent mine. Mm-hmm. Um, so we it, have bile. Yeah, it's, it, it's, um, it, it, I, I don't see, I mean, I, I predicted this would go on for a little while. And then as we came closer to the end of the month, the, the just sheer, you know, weight of the issues, whether it's, you know, passing a funding package for, you know, military aid to Israel or provision to Ukraine or the next budget fight next month would eventually cause these fights to die down. But I I don't think Jim Jordan is the, the one that it can settle on. 
Yeah, Maddie, it's, it's, it's crazy. Apparently, Republicans just had no one who could win a speaker vote and broadly unite all the conference and, and do a pretty good job despite all these divisions. That, that, that guy didn't exist, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, you, you had uh, the, the former governor of Arkansas, Mike Huckabee, on Hannity last night saying, look, this isn't Burger King. The only thing on the menu is Jim Jordan. And then later on during this discussion, um, suggesting that, you know, if you don't like him later, you can just get rid of him the way you got rid of the <laughs> first guy. And you think like, this is not a very good medium to long term strategy. Surely the point here is to resolve the issue so that this doesn't just keep happening. And unfortunately, um, you know, like Jim Jordan has, we've talked about it already, but through his obstructionist tendencies, his, his, uh, proclivity for strong arming and you know if you if you're being harsh you'd maybe call it bullying like this this could theoretically get him the speakership but then once you're a speaker you can't behave like that because the job requires tact it requires you to be effective with other people it requires you to raise a lot of money um and and not least because as you know Paul Ryan has explained like you're you're basically dealing with a bifurcated coalition government there's there's two parties um uh, there's two parties under the same banner of GOP and really your only solution is either a coalition between between yourselves or with the Democrats. So so which is it? Yeah, so that's a great segue to the exit question and sort of gone back and forth when we were when we were first talking about uh, predicting what McCarthy's fate might be, we tended to say, except for MBD, I think, who uh, predicted near the end, no, he's going to go. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. We tended to say uh, he'll survive because there's no alternative. And then, and then he he went, and the, these other people, Scalise and Jordan, were running. And I was like, oh, that that was kind of dumb. There there were alternatives. There always there always are alternatives. But it turns out maybe actually there wasn't an alternative. Not an alternative who could get 217 or 218 votes. So given that, Ramesh, where uh, this this is the exit question: Will Patrick McHenry end up being a sort? sort of, kind of, uh, permanent uh, or acting speaker empowered to actually do stuff in some form or other, yes or no? Yes. I think that that is the way things are headed right now. I think that um, how it happens, though, is going to matter. If it's a bipartisan vote to give him power, I think that's actually a bad way for him to start. If it's just he keeps doing what he's doing until a majority of the House says no, uh, I think that actually makes a lot more sense, even though it may sound like a more chaotic situation. So, so doing what he's doing, not just, you know, what, he, what he's doing is presiding over speaker votes, but, right, but he could, easing but, into other business. Yeah, act, being the acting speaker. Um, the powers of the acting speaker, as defined in a post-911 law, are more expansive than I think are, is generally appreciated. And unless a majority, there are two things that could happen. A majority of the House could vote to curtail his power, or a motion to vacate could mm -hmm. be given uh, uh, against the Speaker Pro Tem. Now, that second one, I think, is just a test of just exactly how insane and suicidal is the House Republican Party. <laughs> Do we want the, we, we don't want to test that, I don't think. So, so is it actually written in the law? Is it kind of spelled out and everyone's missing it? Or is it uh, a matter of interpretation? There are, there are some interpretive questions, but I think it's basically a matter of... Um, so the procedural stuff that's been put in place is, is basically just a majority can, can vote to curtail him. Um, but a lot of it is just sort of precedence that McHenry can set now. Mm -hmm. And how does it matter that McHenry doesn't want to do this? Well, I think that it's probably for the best that he is, uh, he is being a team player uh, at the moment. Um, but, you know, the question is, is he willing to do it? Not does he want to do it or is he volunteering himself for the job? Yeah, the, the, McHenry is the guy who must might have been most screwed over in this whole situation because he doesn't want to be in this position. He might not even have known, right? He was on the on this list that it, that he was he was next in line if if the position McCarthy uh, were vacated. List. What's that? Yeah, McCarthy made a made a secret list. We don't know yeah. now how many other people are on that list. Right. So if they get vacated, <laughs> who's next? Right. <laughs> MVD McHenry will be a, a a kind of speaker. Yes or no? 
Yeah, I mean, I think I, I'm convinced now that he's kind of the Frodo character, right? The ring of power has to fall to him, whether he wants it or not. Um, <laughs> you know, um, yeah, I, I just don't see any other way forward. And it, do, it does say something about the dysfunction of the Republicans that their majority had to resort to a post 9-11, you know, a, 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 an arrangement that was set up in case, you know, the government had been decapitated by a bomb. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I yeah. guess that's what Gates is now. Maddie. Um, yes, I, I think this is perhaps the only plausible solution that remains, although I would I would caveat that by saying that there have been plenty of implausible things that have in fact happened, yes. including getting rid of McCarthy in the first yeah. place. So. No, this is this is very true. So I asked last week whether the exit question was whether we'd have a speaker by the end of the month, and I kind of reluctantly said yes, but I don't really know. I just don't know. I I really don't know. I think it's much preferable to elect an honest-to-goodness speaker under regular order and not using an emergency law that was passed in the event of a terror attack, but it seems as though maybe they just just can't can't do it, and this is what they're going to have to do. So I guess I'll go um, yes uh, as as well. This will end up happening to Patrick McHenry, whether he likes it or not. With that, let's go to our second sponsor of this episode, Bethlehem College, where students study the great books in light of the greatest book for the sake of the great Commission. Trajectories of life are being set for young men and women in the pivotal period between the ages of 18 and 25. At Bethlehem College, students wrestle with these realities, not in a 200-person classroom, but in a 200-person college. Bethlehem College is not a Bible college, but everything in the academic program is saturated with the Bible. The school's chancellor, John Piper, said recently that when he looked at the upcoming generation of students, he observed that their God is too small and their reading is too passive. So Bethlehem's aims are to train students in assiduous attentiveness in all their reading, whether reading their Bible or whether they are reading the world. Bethlehem calls this approach education in serious joy and delivers it at a price that ranks as one of the lowest tuition rates in American Christian higher education, only about $7,500 a year. Bethlehem College Education in Serious Joy. To apply or request more information, visit bcsmn.edu slash editors. That's bcsmn.edu slash editors. Please check it out. So, Maddie, we referred in the first segment to what's been going on on college campuses that has engendered, thankfully, uh, a backlash, but has has also occasioned what people are calling cancellations. We have had some cases of employment offers being revoked for these uh, pro-Hamas uh, students, there have been calls just to to not. Uh, uh, n- no one should hire anyone who's a member of these student groups at Harvard that were p- part of um, this this hideous letter <laughs> that came out a day or two, infamous letter that came out a day or two after the Hamas at- attack. What do you make of it? Yeah. So the the disagreement around cancel culture is is quite an interesting one in that um, I think it's it's shown a, a public misunderstanding for what, what was meant by cancel culture. I think obviously most people can agree that that one can hold opinions that alienate them from polite society. Um, but with cancel culture, there's been a disagreement about what those opinions are and, and how they are evaluated. So typically cancel culture has been people being condemned or ostracized, typically without due process, and that's an important part of it, um, sometimes on completely false or pent-up charges. So, for example, uh, the woman in the UK who lost her job um, for tweeting, in quite a respectful way, tweeting her belief in biological sex and saying that you know men can be women, um, she... She lost her first court case when she said this had been unfair dismissal in the UK and eventually she won and the judge used a test um, 
and the, the test was was related to another case. Uh, it's called the Granger test, and it's beliefs worthy of respect in a democratic society. And in my view, that's kind of the test that we should apply in in this idea of whether somebody should lose their job or, or whether they should be publicly shamed for having said something. Um, obviously, the First Amendment applies, and that's 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 freedom of speech. You know, you can't be put in jail for for saying these things. And um, and I think that if you uh, align yourself with terrorists, if you um, suggest that uh, that the those killed by um, by terrorists were deserving of it because uh, because they happen to be Jews or they, they happen to be um, Israeli citizens, then that is not worthy of respect in a democratic mm-hmm. society. Um, and I do think that, you know, there is a, there is a temptation for, for people to sort of skip over due process. I mean, I'm very interested in who actually wrote the letters, right. who actually signed the letters. You know, it's not fair just to sort of collectively dismiss everybody who's ever been associated with one of these groups. But I think you have, in fairness, you have actually seen uh, law firms take this seriously. So Davis Polk, which is a, a New York-based law firm, um, initially rescinded uh, offers of employment to students at Harvard and Columbia based on 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 uh, they thought they'd identified the leaders of these groups. But then, but then they came back and some of them came back and said, "Hey, uh, we didn't authorize those letters." Um, and actually, at that point, they've reconsidered. So they mm-hmm. they may well end up being employed. Um, there was the other law firm, Winston and Strawn, and they revoked the employment letter for a New York University law student who did actually write the letter. And in this letter, um, she asserted that uh, the regime of, of state-sanctioned violence created the conditions that made resistance necessary. So she's she's not only saying it's justified what Hamas does, mm-hmm. did, she's saying they were compelled to do it. And like I say, I just don't think that's worthy of respect in a democratic society, yeah. not least so, because it's antithetical to it. Yeah, so Maddie, c- clearly on the wrong side of the line you're drawing would be you know, support for the KKK. And that, that wouldn't yeah. really be a debate, right? That no, no, if someone signed a letter saying the KKK is, 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 is what we need and there are all sorts of provocations that justify what the KKK does, no one would hire them. Right, and and we would we would consider somebody completely within their rights to to make that judgment, and we would agree with that judgment. Doesn't necessarily mean they should be in jail. I mean, obviously, if they're inciting violence, or in in the case of terrorist organisations, if you if you're explicit in support for terrorist organisations, that you you are breaking the law. Um, but you know, the, the the First Amendment is obviously a higher bar than I think uh, that, that can be applied for sort of polite society employers making decisions about the kind of people they want to <clears throat> they want to hire. So MBD, you know, one thing I hate is when, and th- this isn't that, but when, you know, so- someone posted something on Instagram in, in high school, you know, and, and then they're hired by the Washington Post, you know, 15 years later, and someone goes back and finds it and, and the, the, they're fired or the offer's revoked. I, I just, I just hate that. Now, th- this isn't that, you know, law school students, these are, these are real adults, but I, I'd be a little wary of, of just, um, having t- fire, firing two broad, broad gauge uh, uh, a gun at this situation and you know are you were you just a member of this group and you weren't aware of it uh, did, did you sign on because you're completely thoughtless and actually you know the blowback has made you sincerely uh, re- reconsider your your views somewhat or were you a ringleader of the whole thing who drafted it and sincerely um, believes it yeah I, I think uh I agree with you in being uncomfortable with urging uh, a universal reaction to these statements. Um, you know, I think uh, one of the greatnesses of America has been the freedom it allows people to reinvent themselves after disgrace. And that's been injured by the the way the internet has close the frontier of ignorance, right? Like there used to be a a frontier of ignorance beyond which you could travel and Mm -hmm. build a new reputation, um, for yourself. Um, that's gone now. And that's, I think that's unfortunate. I I don't think all these students, I, I said, said and believed crazy things in college. Um, I probably said and believed. You you still do. I still say, I still regularly (laughs) say them on these, on these podcasts, which is why I'm probably unemployable outside of this institution. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't think, I don't think what you say in college should be a life sentence to 
being a barista or or lower status uh, person. Um, it certainly hasn't been in the past. I mean, John Brennan could vote for the Communist Party in 1980 and still uh, proceed on to a career of extrajudicially killing people via drone and spying on the U.S. Senate. Um, so, yeah, I, I believe in redemption, I guess. Um, we, you know, we should have a variety of reactions to this. I mean, I, I don't... I don't begrudge a single employer saying, I don't want you on. Um, but I, that's easier to take if there are other people saying like, okay, tell me your story. Let me educate you a little bit on this issue. Maybe you don't know enough yet. Um, you know, people, people need a variety of inputs from the society around them. Not a universal, uh, you know, a universal scarlet letter. Ramesh. So I think there are all kinds of distinctions that have to be made in these cases, which is part of what makes them so difficult. Um, you brought up the example of uh, somebody who is supporting the KKK openly, defending it. Um, well, there are certain, and you know, certainly there are lots of circumstances in which we'd say no brainer, you don't hire that person. But there are also circumstances where you'd say, but you you can't fire somebody. For that, so if you're a tenured university professor, mm -hmm. for example, we have arguably pretty strong reasons um, to protect even that obnoxious opinion. Um, the and then so sort of what the, the in between hiring and firing is of course rescinding an offer to hire, where I think the standards would be intermediate. Um, the the problem is that these things call for judgment, and um, when we debate cancel culture, we tend to think in terms, to, to frame these arguments in terms of kind of absolute principles, when, when what's really at stake here is a kind of disposition of tolerance that is in insufficient supply on a lot of college campuses and in our culture generally. So I ask a question to you first, Maddie Kearns. The pro-Hamas sentiment we have seen on campus has and will continue to backfire and bring, bring discredit on these uh, students and these groups and not help their cause, yes or no? Uh, no, I don't think so, because I think it's changing to that middle space that sort of blurs the lines. I think, I think people have learned what the boundaries are and they, they're, you know, they're, they're much more careful in, in how they're expressing um, their support, at least at least in college campuses, I think so. So I think it, I think it will just morph into something slightly different. MBD. Uh, a backlash in what what time frame are you thinking? Oh, I don't know. A, a vague, a vague medium term, lo longer than what we've just experienced in the first uh, <laughs> first week and a half here. Uh, no, I mean uh, U.S. policy is. <laughs> U.S. policy of subsidy for corrupt higher education and uh, neglectful immigration law mean that the U.S. U.S. policy is firmly aligned in the long term with Hamas and other Islamist terrorists. Um, <laughs> uh, this is going to be a much a, a larger growing segment and sentiment in our population. We're going to see it just like they see it in Europe, where um, you know people are afraid to contradict the uh, shouts from the Ummah uh, defending Hamas. Sorry. Ramesh. So the, the key question, I think, for all of these sorts of campus culture disputes, which to a large degree this is, um, it, it, but not just that, Democratic Party politics too, is where do the, what happens to moderate liberals? Are they more repulsed, as they are at the moment, by these pro-Hamas sentiments, or are they more uh, of a no enemies to the right frame of mind right now uh they're more repulsed but uh but I, I i do have some doubt about their staying power so i guess i guess i come down for arming the moderate liberals <laughs> <laughs> so i agree with maddie you know, i think it'll take a slightly different form this but this basic sentiment will will uh, still still be there fewer fewer paragliders you know on on signs um but but the same the same basic sentiment with that let me um, mention a few NR items. As Ramesh mentioned, the first digital 
edition of the week is is hours uh, less than 24 hours away and i'm sure ramesh is is uh, when he finishes his podcast is going to go and and edit these these uh, week week items with with his colleagues and i'm sure it'll be wonderful and ramesh the feedback so far uh, not everyone's seen it yet it's still ha- heading to people's mailboxes but the the initial reaction to the monthly I- issue has been fantastic so congratulations thank on you that. And then let me uh, urge people to sign up for NR Plus. If you're not already a member, please consider joining tens of thousands of your fellow National Review readers as a member of NR Plus. With that, let's hit a few other things before we go. MBD, you were taken with this interview that Conan O'Brien did with Jim Downey, an old SNL writer. Yeah, um, I just happened to catch it, uh, Conan O'Brien's podcast. I don't always listen to it, but he had on Jim Downey a few weeks ago, who's kind of a, uh, an old hand in the comedy writing business. He was one of the top writers on Late Night with David Letterman, and then for SNL for years, and then famously he was fired along with Norm MacDonald uh, from Weekend Update, where he was kind of Norm MacDonald's writing partner exclusively. And Downey just had... In this, it's just a wide-ranging interview with a lot of great backstories about comedy in the last three decades and insights about authorial voice in comedy and in writing generally. And um, it was just really in- in- incredible. And uh, Downey's kind of a champion for real laughter and not going for the cheap clapter uh, that's become the stock and trade of too many comedians today. So, Maddie, you've been doing some hosting. Yeah, it's been a very busy month. Uh, we've had friends, family staying. We've got another friend coming today. And uh, I, I love hosting. I, I love, love people and love having people we love stay with us. But it is kind of funny how how I feel people say things about New York City that they wouldn't say when they visit anyone else, you know, they say, oh, this is so terrible. Like, why would you want to live here? I'm just like, I'm just like imagining, you know, if I went to visit my friends in Michigan and I was like, this is a dump. Why do you guys Strip <laughs> <laughs> you know, everywhere. This yeah, is terrible. Ex- exactly. And it's just, people really take liberties with New York. They, they, I'm like, this is my home, at least for now. Like, could you please refrain from trashing it? So anyway, hopefully our guest tonight will be too polite to do that. I think taking liberties with New York is a New York tradition. <laughs> yeah, but I don't know. I, I just think it should be a, a universal standard of politeness that, that when someone's putting you up, you don't trash their home. <laughs> Fair enough. Ramesh, what have you been up to so, besides, um, besides all the setting? Yes. Well, in, uh, in my spare time, I um, have been uh, watching the fifth season of Unforgotten, uh, a British murder series, uh, which I have, a, I have a soft spot for all of these. But this one's taxing it because, spoiler alert, it turns out that the, that the killer ends up being um, essentially the Tory party and the ghost of Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> <laughs> So we have a, another big event at NR going on, which is our, our dear colleague, our former CFO, who uh, transitioned into a, a part-time role uh, several years ago, is finally going to retire at the end of the year. Jim Kilbridge, he, he is, you know, there are a lot of people you hear from at National Review, you see them on TV, you read their writing, you listen to them on, on podcasts, and, and they're all extremely important to what we do, obviously. But then there are, there are all these people that you never hear of or you don't know who really are central to the operation and, and keep the, the train somewhat on the rails, right? It's, it's always a little bit off the rails, but somewhat on, somewhat on the rails. And Jim, Jim Kilbridge did that for 33 years. And, it, and he did it uh, at the outset when, when NR was at its very most dysfunctional. Um, back when we were in, in our ancestral 35th Street Street office. So he's seen a lot. He's gone through a lot. He's uh, helped us work through sticky situations that would, would never happen and no professional would encounter at any other uh, organization. So, Jim, we love you. We, we appreciate you. And thanks for all that you've done. With that, it's time for our editor's picks. MBD, what's your pick? Uh, my pick is... Uh, maybe paradoxically after what I just said, it's Kayla Barch's Yaley's for Terrorism. 
uh, which just goes through and spotlights all the crazy things that uh, were said uh, by Yale students and student groups in the past couple weeks. It is a shot, you know, it is a shocking portrait of what uh, our our elite schools are producing, and therefore it's a preview of what the State Department and uh, the Justice Department will be enforcing on the world and on us in the future. Maddie Kearns, what's your pick? Uh, my pick is John McCormack's uh, corner post in which he um, asked some pretty tough but necessary questions to Rashida Tlaib and Ilan Omar and did not get any answers, but I think uh, kudos to John for doing some uh, bits on the ground journalism and uh, exposing uh, what's really going on here. Yeah, that, that was great. Ramesh? I would urge people who have only heard a little bit about Thomas Sowell or even have just read one of Sowell's books to pick up our new issue and read Wilfred Riley's overview of Sowell's career because it's really been a remarkable one um, that uh, deserves uh, more widespread appreciation. And Wilfred Riley does it justice. So my pick for the third time in four eps of this podcast is a Noah Rothman piece. It was on the the hospital lie. And, you know, I was was thinking uh, about that overnight and just occurred to me, yeah, this is really a terrible sign for for what's ahead in terms of the, the debate over Gaza and Israel's response. And then, then I look at the headline, you know, on the website, this is a terrible sign, <laughs> you know, and Noah just, as he has throughout this, uh, this, this crisis over the last week and a half, just totally <laughs> nailed it. So that's it for us. But I have to say, according to my clock, we, we uh, depending on how long it takes me to, to get out of here, we're going to be under 60 minutes, which I think is a very uh, good thing. Very unusual for us, though, Ramesh, and, and I blame your overly lapidary answers. Over, <laughs> way too concise and precise, Ramesh. Lapidary you know, being a word I learned while working at National Review. We, Bill Buckley we, asked me on a panel to, to give a lapidary statement, and I had to elbow Jay and ask him, Jay Norlinger, and ask him what it meant. <laughs> yeah, I have a friend who went to a live taping of Firing Line uh, with Bill and Henry Kissinger, and there was a question that Bill asked that, that Kissinger just d- didn't answer and, and totally evaded. My friend went up to Kissinger <laughs> kind of brazenly afterwards, and like, what's, what's the deal with that? You couldn't, you know, you hadn't thought that through, or this is too sensitive a question for you to a- answer. Uh, and, and, and Kissinger said, no, I, I just didn't understand. I didn't, there's a word he used I didn't understand. I didn't know what the question was. So, so we all, if, if Henry Kissinger had that experience, believe me, uh, we all did. So anyway, as I mentioned, uh, that's it for us. You've been listening to a National U podcast and your rebroadcast, retransmission, or account this game without the express written permission of National U magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shitty, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Maddie. Thank you, Ramesh. Thank you, MBD. Thanks to Donors Trust and Bethlehem College. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.